Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The White House briefing room is famously cramped. Nine meters by 20, it's built on the site of the former presidential swimming pool, where Lyndon Johnson liked to lounge around naked. With seats for 49 reporters, plus snaking TV cables and sprigs of microphones, it's normally packed. Its denizens sit elbow to elbow, like passengers on a cheap flight. Just like those flights, the press room has been two-thirds empty for the past year. But this week, reporters were crammed back together again after the White House scrapped social distancing. Washington is returning to normal as the pandemic recedes, thanks to a successful vaccination program. With the domestic crisis abating, Joe Biden has flown abroad for the first time as president. How will the return to normality change his and America's leadership? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, is the pandemic over in America? President Biden is in Britain for the G7 summit. Accelerating the vaccine rollout so the rest of the world catches up with America is a priority for the club of rich democracies. It's a contrast to a year ago when America's failure to manage the pandemic ruined its reputation as a world leader on public health. What might the success of the vaccine rollout mean for its global role? With me to discuss all of this are John Fasman, the US digital editor, and Tamara Jilks-Bohr, the US policy correspondent. Tamara, how are you doing? Do you feel that life is getting back to something like normal in DC? I do feel like things are getting back to normal. I am noticing that people are going to restaurants and I was actually in New Jersey this weekend visiting family and you could walk into restaurants without your mask on and it felt pretty normal again. Prasman, how about you? How normal are you feeling? You're wearing a tie. I don't think I've ever seen you wear a tie before. What's going on? I, uh, well, I like to dress up for you guys. I feel I haven't been showing you the proper respect, so I, I put a tie on. I feel that things are getting back to normal. I'm, I'm wearing a tie because after this is done recording, I'm going to give an actual speech in person to a room full of people. Okay, so to kick us off this week, John, you've been speaking to a friend of the podcast to get a sit rep on the pandemic and the vaccination program. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I spoke to Dr. Kavita Patel. We talked to her uh, last fall when the Pfizer vaccine first got approval. She is a non-resident fellow at Brookings and a doctor here in D.C. She's treated COVID patients. She also advised Kamala Harris's presidential campaign on health matters. I wanted to know if she thought the pandemic was over. The other week in my clinic for the first time, I had no positive cases and no historical COVID cases. We were all seeing these trends simultaneously across the country. 
no COVID admissions in the last 24 to 48 hours, no positive cases. In my area, in the Washington, D.C. area, we just see so few positives that when we do see a positive now, we all kind of put attention to it and try to do some contact tracing and understand what happened. Always, 100% of the time, with the exception of one individual, those cases have been unvaccinated individuals. Is the pandemic over? No. <laughs> I, I would like to say, yes, it's over. It's all done. Um, but we all know that even though the United States seems to be opening back up to normal, that we're watching concerning trends with variants all around the world, particularly looking at the United Kingdom, where we saw very high vaccination rates, but recent troubling trends around variants that are now potentially thought to be even more of a threat than what was called uh, the UK variant, which is the dominant variant in the United States. Is the risk from these variants that they will infect people who are vaccinated, that they will evade vaccines, or that they will lay waste to the unvaccinated? Yeah, it's more the latter. So the real eminent risk is the reservoir of unvaccinated individuals, which offer an opportunity for the virus to reproduce and mutate. The virus always mutates. The more unvaccinated people you have, the physical opportunities the virus has to mutate in a manner that could potentially not only escape immunity, but of course also harm the people that are unvaccinated. So given this concern, do you think the United States is opening up too quickly? I do think that the United States is opening up too quickly for the unvaccinated. So I think that it's incredibly clear if you're vaccinated, any of the three vaccines, it is safe to virtually resume pre-pandemic activities to a limit. And the limits really have to do, um, I think, with, you know, indoors in places where the majority of people are unvaccinated could you just expose a vaccinated individual to more risk? It's possible. But really, my worry about the country opening up too much that I think unvaccinated individuals look around and feel like the world is normal. They don't need to get vaccinated. There's not as much pressure. And they don't need to wear masks because cases are dropping so dramatically. So let's imagine a world in which you are head of the CDC or at least head of the CDC's messaging arm. What would your message be to the public? What do you think the guidance should be? My message to the public would be pretty dire. My message would be, if you do not get vaccinated, you will get infected. I do not know exactly when, I do not know exactly how, but you will be infected. You're making a choice. So you can take the choice where we know that even the younger, healthy people can end up in the ICU, as a recent CDC report has shown, or you can get vaccinated. And I think that as the vaccines move through a fuller approval process, kind of the full FDA approval, I think some of the, you know, oh, this was too rushed or, oh, this is still experimental fades away. But my message as a CDC director would be much more controversial. You either get vaccinated or you get infected. It's just as simple as that. And that I think is a little bit more straightforward than the rather confusing messaging that we've heard lately. Tamara, you've been reporting about the virus in the US and the public policy decisions around opening and closing and distribution of vaccines and vaccine hesitancy. How do you view what's happening at the moment? I mean, it's hard not to be pleased that life seems to be getting back to normal in America. But how anxious are you that America's going too far too fast? So as you know, John, I was pretty critical of the CDC when they announced that vaccinated individuals could 
go unmasked without also simultaneously announcing how we could determine if somebody was in fact vaccinated. However, it does seem like the decision has gone the right direction. And that's probably because a lot of people who were pushing back against vaccination and were potentially at risk were probably not following mask mandates to begin with. So I think overall, while I was pretty critical of the CDC's announcement, I think that it's done a lot of positive, a lot of good, and the country's going in the right direction. How about you, John? Do you share that view? I mean, looking at the vaccination numbers, America's done well compared with Europe, right? I think 53% of adults have had two vaccinations and so should be well protected. But if you look at the state-by-state numbers, in some states, the vaccination rates are really pretty low. I mean, Mississippi, which admittedly is the bottom of the pack, is down there on only 28% of adults having had both jabs. And you worry a bit about what might happen if the virus starts circulating there while everyone's opening up. It is concerning. And you're right. There's a huge amount of variation. All six states in New England have vaccinated more than half of their population. New Jersey and Maryland are at 50 percent. But Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, Wyoming and Tennessee all have less than one third of their population vaccinated. So as Dr. Patel said, the virus can really find reservoirs among that population and you could start to see spread again. And then you have this odd situation in which you can have health crises in these states that didn't take COVID terribly seriously to begin with, um, while the states that did are basically up and running and back to normal. It's really hard to craft federal policy with that much divergence from state to state. So I do, of course, share Tamara's concern. And I'm glad in that sense that the federal government has left in place mask mandates for buses, for trains, for public transport, for planes. And I think the concern is not this summer. I think there's not as much virus activity in warm weather. But if we don't get those vaccination rates up in in laggard states, then it could be a bad winter there. Tamara, how likely do you think America is to get the vaccination rates up in those laggard states that John was mentioning? I mean, you've written about vaccine hesitancy quite a lot this year, Um, first among African-Americans because there was a concern there and more recently among white evangelicals who are vaccine hesitant for for different reasons. How high do you think the vaccination rate can get in America? And is it high enough to get to herd immunity? Or do you think that despite the huge efforts that the country's made and all the successes in developing these effective vaccines so fast, there's a risk that take up just isn't high enough? Yeah, I'm very concerned that we won't achieve herd immunity. I think that's for a couple of reasons. You mentioned African-American hesitancy. That actually is a more positive story. We're seeing that over time as African-Americans learn more about the vaccine, see more people get vaccinated, they are improving in terms of their desire to get the vaccine. We saw a 19 percentage point improvement in interest in the vaccine between November and February of this year among African-Americans. So they went from 42% interest as a group in getting the vaccine to 61% in February. So that's a really positive story. And that is one where we are seeing public health messages be successful. And to give you your due on that quickly, that was exactly what you said would happen at the time. So you're too modest to mention it, but I remember you writing a piece at the time of maximum concern of African-Americans being vaccine hesitant and lots of articles about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment and the legacy of that. And you said, in fact, 
when people know somebody who's been vaccinated and see that it's safe, take up will improve among African-Americans. You're absolutely right about that. (laughs) Well, thanks for pointing out when I predicted accurately. I uh, appreciate it if you don't mention the times that I have inaccurately predicted things. (laughs) But I don't think there were any. I've forgotten all of those. (laughs) Unfortunately, we have not seen as much of a movement from another vaccine-hesitant group white evangelicals. And like I mentioned, African-Americans improved by 19 percentage points in terms of their interest in the vaccine between November and February. But we have seen that white evangelicals have remained steadily hesitant over time. And the reasons for their hesitancy are twofold. It's religion and it's politics. When it comes to religion, there are two main concerns. The first is potential ties to abortion. And the second is this biblical story called the mark of the beast. Many Christians, particularly white evangelicals, are concerned that there is a direct tie to abortion and the vaccine. And it's true that the vaccines were developed using cell lines from aborted fetal tissue, but it is not true that the vaccine requires continual abortions or that the vaccine uses recently aborted fetuses. There's also this interesting story in the book of Revelation that describes the end of days where a beast or false prophet will come and force his mark onto people. And some worry that this vaccine is that mark of the beast. So we're seeing there two main concerns in terms of religion. Then we're also seeing politics. About 80% of white evangelicals voted for Trump in 2020. And as we all remember, he downplayed the severity of the virus and hid his vaccination status for weeks. Now, Donald Trump did share his vaccination status eventually, but the damage had already been done. So I am less confident that we will see this group budge, though we may see some people start to get vaccinated when it starts to really impact them individually. For example, if they can't travel abroad or if their job starts to require them to get vaccinated. Thanks both. There's a lot more discussion of vaccine hesitancy on the Jab podcast if you want to go deeper into that subject. In the meantime, your weekly reminder, if you don't subscribe to The Economist already, it's very simple to sign up. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash US pod. This week, there's a long piece on American soft power. We have a leader on helping poorer countries to get vaccines. And Tamara has been writing about the reading wars and how American school children could be taught to read much more effectively. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. Joe brought it home from the office. He gave it to Betty. The threat from the coronavirus is receding, thanks to a successful vaccination program. And one of his kids. And to Betty's mother. But things didn't go so well in 1976. On her way to the airport, she gave it to a cab driver, a ticket agent, and one of the charming stewardesses. In February that year, Private David Lewis collapsed and died during basic training at the Fort Dix Army Base in New Jersey. And gave it to her husband. Tests by the Center for Disease Control revealed Lewis and hundreds of other soldiers had a strain of swine flu that seemed related to the one that caused the 1918 pandemic. Daddy gave it to her girl. Health officials feared a million Americans might die. If a swine flu epidemic comes, this is how it could spread. 
The director of the CDC, David Sensor, recommended bold action. The most ambitious mass vaccination program ever. I don't need another flu shot. I had a flu shot last year. President Gerald Ford decided he couldn't risk ignoring such stark scientific advice in an election year. Get a shot of protection. The swine flu shot. He backed the campaign. We offer every American the opportunity to be inoculated against a swine-type influenza virus. But the plan soon ran into trouble. The pace of the vaccine development was too quick for insurers who refused to cover flu shot manufacturers against any adverse reactions. Congress had to step in to indemnify the drug companies. This had the unintentional effect of undermining confidence in the vaccine. The president was photographed rolling up his sleeve for a jab. But public confidence took another hit when dozens of vaccine recipients were diagnosed with Guillain-Barré syndrome, a rare neurological disorder that can cause paralysis. The government shut down the program. 45 million Americans had been vaccinated against a pandemic that never materialized. I sense their very independent and autonomous spirit, much, uh, much like the voters of our own northwestern and northeastern urban centers. Comedian Chevy Chase did a devastating Soviet impersonation of the president on Saturday Night Live with a syringe poking out of his arm. Ford lost the election. David Sensor, the CDC director, lost his job too despite a reputation built on eradicating smallpox. In his recent book, Premonition, the author Michael Lewis says that scientists at the CDC never regained the confidence to recommend the kind of bold public health interventions needed to prevent the next pandemic. The director's job became politicized. When a vaccine is ready, the US government will deploy every plane, truck and soldier required to help distribute it to the American people as quickly as possible. Given the charged political environment, the success of the latest vaccination program seems nothing short of miraculous. Operation Warp Speed was a gamble. So far, it's paid off. John, I think when people look back at this pandemic, the CDC once again will come in for criticism, and fairly so, on for two reasons, really. Number one, the messaging around the virus early on was very poor, and I suppose even more importantly, there were the delays in the development of a reliable test, which cost America a lot of time early on, which proved to be very important. And also, of course, the messaging from the White House was hopeless, and the White House did a poor job of coordinating the national response to the coronavirus. That said, I think the death toll would have been a lot higher than it has been if America didn't have this very decentralised approach to public health with counties having their own public health officers, a lot of things being done on, on state level. When we were talking to each other about a year ago, when America had recently passed 100,000 deaths, the picture seemed extremely gloomy and generally seemed to be one of, of government failure. I don't think that's quite right looking back from the perspective we have now. I think that's right. I don't think this was a case of government failure. There were some hurdles early on. There was some not great messaging. There was some, you know, confusion. But this is a novel virus, and we learned as we went. And that's that's the nature of the beast. That's what science is. I think that the 
vaccine rollout and ramp up in production has been extraordinary without parallel in public health history. I think the messaging on masks, once we sort of got it right, has been pretty consistent. Dr. Patel explained in an interview that there is, in fact, a strong correlation between county-level infection and death rates and mask mandates. And I think one reason that this campaign worked as well as it did, in fact, was the horror of early last year. Was anyone watching, especially you know up in New York, where, where I live, just saw the grim toll of the virus firsthand. And so there was a tremendous willingness from people who had seen that to obey CDC advice, to follow mass mandates. Even now in New York, where I think the vaccination rate is probably extraordinarily high, people are still masking up in public, on the streets, on subways. And I think that indicates just how scarring the past year has been. Yeah, just on the vaccine thing, I still find it amazing that there were no mRNA vaccines approved for use before the pandemic came along, that this pretty untested technology was put to use at incredible speed and works so well. As you say, I think it is with, well, I'm sure I'm always aware of saying something's without parallel because generally it means you haven't thought hard enough to find a parallel, but it's pretty darn amazing, uh, however you look at it. Tamara, one of the things that we've talked about a lot over the past year, and you've written about a bit, has been this question about states opening up, opening restaurants, etc., you know, indoor dining, outdoor dining, just generally the questions of how effective social distancing is, how necessary it is. And there, looking back from the distance we have now, I feel that like I'm almost more confused than ever. On the one hand, we know that until vaccines come along, social distancing is the only way you can stop a virus from spreading. So that, that seems common sense. On the other hand, some of the states that pursued a much more libertarian approach to the virus, I'm thinking particularly Texas and Florida, where Republican governors were keen to get the masks off and you know get people behaving as they would normally as, as quickly as possible in a way that seemed quite reckless to me, at least, haven't done nearly as badly as I thought they would. So how have you changed your thinking over the past few months about those trade-offs? John, I'm confused too. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to the research that will come out in the coming months and years that really disentangle this. But I have a few thoughts now without the data. <laughs> I think there is such great diversity in American states and I think that when we look at states that had a particularly hard time with the coronavirus, like New York, we see that they are incredibly densely populated states. So I think that has a lot to do with it as well. They are states where people live very close together. They ride public transportation. Obviously, in, in New York, that I'm talking about New York City, not the entire state. But I think that will have a lot to do with it. I'm also interested in potentially the role of reporting and data. We look at infections, who's going to the doctor, who's reporting an infection. I have a feeling that some of that could vary in interesting ways by state. So we have to think about the integrity of the data as well. I also know that public health officials were concerned about some states reporting race and ethnicity data and others not. And I do worry that some disparities could be hidden when data are not reported at the race level. So I think overall, there will be a coherent message that develops and we will start to understand 
exactly why we're seeing such variants, but I have to admit that I'm pretty confused too. I mean, one data point worth considering is that even in states like Florida and Texas, densely populated big counties, that is liberal cities, generally had mask mandates. And so that might have kept numbers down to the extent that this is somewhat a disease of density, or at least a disease that transmits in crowds. I think that may have helped keep the numbers down. And I think that may be one reason why states with the lowest death rates, Utah, Maine, Vermont, Hawaii, Oregon, they're all states with significant rural populations. And Hawaii also benefited from being an island and controlling who got there and who didn't. Yeah, I think there are all sorts of things that aren't decisions that are within the powers of governors or state officials to make that had an impact here. So you mentioned New York and its density, Tamara, and that seems absolutely right. It's also worth remembering that New York City was the first place really where community transmission got going in America. So it was hit really hard early. Um, New York in the winter is cold. Lots of people are spending time indoors. The virus spreads more indoors versus somewhere like Hawaii, where you can spend more of the time outdoors. So public policy is clearly important here. And one of our jobs is writing about public policy. But I think one of the things we've been trying to do for the past year and a half really is weigh up quite how much of the variation in how the disease has behaved in different states is actually down to to public policy. And my bias, as, as Tamara says, I think we'll find out later on when we have more data and we have more studies, my bias is that public policy is perhaps less important than some people assume. Okay, thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to look at the political ramifications of all of this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With Joe Biden spending the weekend in sunny Cornwall, the UK is basking in a rare spell of hot weather at the moment a lot of the attention will be on how he intends to leverage America's success in developing and distributing COVID vaccines into global influence. To get a sense of how that might work, I've been speaking to Bruno Massaias. He's a former Portuguese politician and a close observer of American politics. His latest book is called Geopolitics for the End Time and anticipates the aftermath of the pandemic. The US is coming out of the pandemic very strong. The economy is booming. Goldman Sachs is talking about 7% growth this year. And uh, in terms of international prestige, many officials all over the world and public opinion all over the world look to the U.S. with that kind of envy. They were able to get the vaccine program rolling very, very fast, leaving the EU behind, for example, which is a sort of peer competitor in this sort of thing. It's not the case that China uh, is doing badly, but just that U.S. has recovered very strongly. Yes, it's interesting. It feels like looking at it through an American lens, there have just been several cycles. Initially, there was this sense that America was pretty well prepared for the pandemic. It came later to the US than to the EU. And then I think quite a lot of Americans looked with envy at European countries who seem to be better able to get social distancing measures in place, 
to slow down the spread of the virus. Um, but now much higher proportion of Americans have been vaccinated and double vaccinated than Europeans. And the pandemic seems to be ending in America quicker than elsewhere. So what's your analysis of what happened there? You know, it often felt like American observers at various points when the virus was peaking, you know, looked to Europe and said, why can't we do it like like them? Why, why is our political system such a failure? And why is our president so bad? Um, and and now from this vantage point, that you know that analysis doesn't look quite so correct. Right, uh, I think it doesn't look correct at all. Uh, Europe had a a good moment in the summer, where it was able to bring the the infection rate down. But apart from that short period, this has been a continuing nightmare up to now. Uh, we're still discussing here in Portugal, also in Britain whether we're going to have still a final COVID wave before we're finally over. Now, this could change again, I have to say, because it does look like the U.S. is going to have real trouble uh, taking the vaccination rate above 70%. It's it's stuck at 60-something, and I think the EU will do better in that respect. By the end of the year, we'll probably be at 80 85% of the adult population, and the U.S. will struggle because there's a large segment of the U.S. population that is uh, so disaffected uh, with the uh, establishment, uh, with the institutional framework. And so by the end of the year, we may be in a position where many pockets of COVID are still active in the U.S., uh, whereas Europe would have essentially eliminated the virus. The final act is still not, not here, and we'll keep changing our mind about who does best and who does worse. Has the epidemic, the various epidemics in different countries and different continents, have they revealed something that you didn't know about this contrast that we like to draw between Europe and America? Or is it fundamentally reinforced your views of what America's like and what Europe is like? It has reinforced my views, but I still think that it has been a revelatory moment uh, about different regimes all over the world. What Americans in general seemed unable to do was to manage the pandemic in a way that I say that the Chinese were able to manage it. In fact, it's sort of troubling to think that if the vaccines hadn't come along so quickly, the US would still be in the middle of it uh, without any way out. Uh, and think also about if we had traditional vaccine technology, there's a, a, a vaccine in India that is inactivated virus, a couple in, in China, they have proven to be, and I don't want to advise people not to take them. If that's the only vaccine they had, they should take them. But they have proven to be rather ineffective. If we had only those vaccines in Europe and the US, we wouldn't be out of this um, because what they would promise would be to bring the infection rates down, but not to guarantee to each person, to each individual, the level of safety that uh, mRNA vaccines guarantee. There's something quite individualistic about the new vaccine technology. Everyone feels safe. So I think uh, America, but you know, the world in general, have been extraordinarily lucky that we got this vaccine so quickly, and we really needed the new technology. It wasn't a luxury at all. Uh, so its um, story seems so far to have ended well, but it was really a strike of luck. What do you think the lasting effects on international relations will be, if any? Or, or do you think that by the time this is over, whenever it finally is over, people will have vastly overstated the extent to which it changed the prestige of this country or the other or, or changed relations between countries? 
it has it has changed the international system. I think we'll remember that impact. It has contributed to eroding the system of rules and institutions. I think that's obvious. Now that system was already in crisis, and that's probably why COVID was able to erode it uh, so easily and so quickly. It was in crisis because of Trump, uh, because of China, because of Russia. But clearly, what we saw was a sort of return to I don't want to call it the jungle. I prefer to call it the arena, an extremely competitive arena. Biden himself talks about extreme competition. And I think COVID contributed to that. We saw that with with vaccines, uh, and we see that going forward. Uh, And I think the US and China are well prepared for this. And they seem to be coming out of it as members of a, a kind of a G2 world, which is becoming now more obvious. Tamara Bruno makes a good distinction there, I think, between the management of the virus before vaccines came along, which I think went pretty badly in America, and then the development of vaccines and the rollout of vaccines um, and the mass vaccination program, which has gone really well. So just to take the second bit, what went right in America when it comes to getting people vaccinated? I think a lot went right when it came to distributing the vaccine, though, of course, there are still some hiccups. We saw a push to get many people vaccinated. And we also saw a large push for equitable access. So first we saw the Biden administration really emphasize getting as many people vaccinated as possible when they were eligible. We saw the development of mass vaccination sites. We saw partnerships with pharmacies, and that really helped to get the vaccine distributed throughout the United States. We also saw in some states more than others, a push towards access and equity. We saw states like Vermont prioritize people of color, for example, because they acknowledged that people of color were at greater risk. We saw in general this push to make sure that there was access for people who couldn't get to sites with mobile units, for example. So I think this combined push of mass access with a focus on equity for those who were either at risk because of their racial background or at risk because they were in an environment where they had to travel far to get a vaccine, that combination created a successful distribution. And so President Joe Biden arrives at the G7 in Europe, John, with this vaccination program at home well underway. He's promised to give away 500 million doses of vaccine to foreign countries. Is that enough? It's not nearly enough. The world will need about 11 billion doses to to be adequately vaccinated. The IMF calculates that getting 70% of the planet's population inoculated by next spring would cost $50 billion. Joe Biden clearly wants to make the defense of democracies a hallmark of his presidency. He wants to show that democracy can deliver for their own citizens and that they can do it better than authoritarian countries. I can think of no better way to show that, then by the G7, this group of rich democracies fully funding efforts to get the rest of the world vaccinated with quality vaccines so that they're not relying on Sputnik and Sinovac and whatever strings may be attached to that, but to just give money away so that so that the world can get healthy. I think that 500 million doses is a good start. It's more than has been given away so far, but I would hope they would go much bigger. We have a leader to that effect in this week's Economist, which points out that it would cost the G7 
of annual GDP to effectively vaccinate the world. And the return on investment of that spending is, of course, enormous. Yeah, the return on investment is enormous. And I think it's important as a demonstration of, of soft power, of, of generosity, of just an important way to help rehabilitate America's image after the past four years. And Tamara, do you think Joe Biden will get much credit domestically for the successful vaccine rollout? I do think that President Biden will get much of the credit, but I do think we have to be fair and acknowledge President Trump for Operation Warp Speed. The vaccines are an incredible invention. An incredible, this is an incredible moment in world history. And the United States and President Trump's leadership significantly contributed to that. However, I do think that the distribution went extremely well. And a lot of that has to do with President Biden's leadership, his focus on getting everyone vaccinated, and his administration's focus on access and equity. I do hope that history will look back and give both presidents the credit that they deserve. Before I let both of you go, it's quiz time. President Biden, as we mentioned, is in the UK this week. He's been visiting the Queen in London, as is traditional on such occasions. The first official visit of a US president to the UK was in December 1918, just after the First World War, when Woodrow Wilson's arrival merited just two lines in The Economist. The UK is the third most visited country for American presidents. Which two countries have had more presidential visits? It's got to be Canada and Mexico, right? I was going to say the same thing and thought that was a terrible idea. But now that Fasman's gone with it, I'm going to say Canada and Mexico. (laughs) That's a really good strategy generally for (laughs) quizzing. Uh, You both get half a point. Canada is one of them. France is the Uh. other one, turns out. Donald Trump made fewer state visits than his predecessors. George W. Bush set the record with 140, with Clinton and Obama close behind. Theodore Roosevelt made the first ever official visit by an American president in 1906. He went to see a key construction project in which country? Oh, Panama. I was going to say Panama too, but then I thought I'm not confident and I will sound so silly if that is wrong. <laughs> Tamara, don't hesitate. This is... <laughs> This Don't is why hesitate. I am so awful at trivia. I just do not trust my instincts. <laughs> your instincts are good. Next time, just go with the first thought that pops into your head. <laughs> it was indeed Panama. Roosevelt visited the site of the Panama Canal. The United States had just paid $10 million to the newly independent country for control of the canal zone. While he was there, the president initiated the tradition of the foreign photo op by sitting atop a great steam shovel in a white suit and hat. I'd like to know who the last president to publicly wear a white suit was. Well, we know who was the last one to wear a beige suit. That's right. Obama in the tan suit. <laughs> white suit. That's a good question. Do you think Jimmy Carter? I, I think he might be in a sort of seersucker kind of person. Yeah. I don't know. Tamara, what, what would you guess? We'll have to look this up. Maybe somebody can tweet at us and let us know what the actual answer is rather than me just speculating wildly. This is not part of the quiz, by the way. There are no <laughs> points up for grabs because I don't know what the answer is. I do remember Kamala Harris's white suit. So I'll go with that. Thanks, Tamara. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thanks also to Nico Rofast and to John Shields for producing. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. I did check the reviews the other day and we were just short of a thousand reviews. So if we can get just a few more reviews after this podcast, then we'll, we'll cross that magic threshold. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is radio at economist.com. 
In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.